when we first got here, you would hear from, uh, it's really hard to work with local fishermen until you get to establish a relationship. And they were like, oh, that's cute. Like, there's a lot of people that come to us that say, you're going to use us. And it was like, well, let us prove you wrong. And it's like, you know, in the height of the summer, we're selling 200 pounds of butterfish a week. And they're like, okay, now we're taking you seriously. So it was about forming those relationships that were not easy to do. Like, because you go down to the docks and have, they don't want to talk to you. It's kind of, and we've seen that change a lot. I think COVID changed a lot of that too, because then they, the fishermen needed to sell fish at the docks as well. And the public started to also see that. But it took a long time to, to get those things going. flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome back to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast the place where we unravel the rich landscape of culinary stories from the most talented chefs reshaping America's food scene. A special shout out today to all the dedicated cooks and chefs tuning in while working on their craft in the kitchen. I am your host, Emmanuel Laroche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. And today, we have a special treat for our listeners. We are diving deep into the heart of New England's culinary identity with an exclusive panel discussion recorded live at the Star Chefs event in beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. Thanks to Simmerize North America and Star Chefs for making this possible. We have some of the brightest stars of Providence and Newport, Rhode Island culinary world with us. Chef Derek Wagner from Nixon Broadway, Chef Eric Brown from Thick Neck at the Dean Hotel, Chef Kevin O'Donnell from Justo in Newport, Chef Nick Gillespie from Dune Brothers Seafood, and bartender Jesse Hedberg from Pizza Marvin. Today, these culinary leaders will discuss the evolution of New England's food scene, the magic behind their signature dishes and drinks, and the inspirations that fuel their creativity. So whether you are kneading the dough, searing the steak, commuting, or just lounging with a cup of coffee, let's dive deep into this culinary conversation together. So welcome to this panel discussion. I'm very happy to be here in Providence, Rhode Island with the selection of star chefs, let's say winners for, you know, for this year, 2023. And so I'm going to get into the conversation right away. So we are in, you know, New England. So I, I would like to hear from you and whoever wants to start first, you know, how would you describe the, the food scene? you know, in, in New England. And it could be, when I say food scene, every time I'm going to use food, but it's, you know, beverage related, desserts, whatever you want to, to cover. So who wants to, to start? The food and beverage scene in New England is, is vibrant and it's growing. 
I think we saw a lot of people move back to their regions in New England from bigger cities during COVID and before COVID. It started kind of as a trend. So you see a lot of chefs coming that have gone out and learned a lot over, you know, whether it was California, New York, Boston, all sorts of places like that, and coming to, you know, a smaller city like this in Providence, Rhode Island, and working with different, you know, purveyors, farmers and stuff. And it's, yeah, it's really great. And I'm happy to be part of the food scene in New England. Okay. Yeah. Guilty of that, having moved here a year ago from Chicago. <laughs> no, I think, you know, to your point, there was always a huge draw to come back to New England when I was spending time in Chicago. I was there for almost five years. But there was always kind of like, you know, an itch I couldn't scratch to get back to, you know, the coast, to get back to the farms that I came to love during my time here. And in the time that I was in Chicago, you know, it was really cool to keep a finger on the pulse to what's going on. And I think Providence and Portland and Portsmouth, New Hampshire, you saw like the biggest kind of like regenerative restaurant culture through the last five years and through COVID. I think that there's a lot of like really amazing concepts, food and beverage programs, et cetera, coming out of, you know, the new normal as we're beginning to call it. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. The So in Rhode Island specifically, there's really, there's kind of two cities that come to mind for food and beverage that are kind of taking the charge. And really Providence for me is at the top of that. I'm from Newport and, you know, I'm, I'm the first to say that Providence is more exciting to me than Newport. And a lot of that has to do with the opportunity, the rent, the, the, you know, the interesting neighborhoods, the diversity in Providence that Newport completely lacks. And, you know, it's, it's really exciting. I think to other chefs points, like people are coming back to Rhode Island or they're coming to Rhode Island because there's a draw here. There's, you know, there's everything at Rhode Island has so much to offer. There's mm-hmm. great farms. There's great producers of local products you know people are trying to make wines and you know there's 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 lots of things that are happening in rhode island and it's really exciting and me coming from newport you know i think the food scene there is starting to really it's starting to get better the problem there is rent and smaller independent restaurants with you know great beverage programs or great hospitality and thinking about food first is tough because you have to think about rent first because it's so expensive so you know there's just a smaller pool of of people that are willing to take a risk in Newport, where where in Providence, I think people are able to and are more willing to take a risk. Okay. Just to echo what everybody is saying already, vibrancy, really, in New England, there's a lot of pride. There's people that have uh, pride in the sense of place here. To back up even a bit more, uh, seasons, you know, four seasons we get that, that are really intense and what that does to the food palette and the food spectrum, not only from what's available locally, you know, with our proximity to the coast and, and so many smaller producers and farmers. And now also over the last five plus years, breweries, distilleries, wineries, people making wine, the landscape is literally changing where, you know, 20 years ago, there was this conception where you had to go to a big city to really mm-hmm. to cut your chops to make it happen or you weren't serious right like you had to go to New York or Chicago or San Francisco or or one of those one of the big big cities otherwise you were just sort of on the outskirts and i think along the last 20 years so many things have changed to to buck that 
And one of them being in, in, in cities like Providence and Portland and so many other cool little cities that the economy of scale flipped the script from being a negative to a positive, right? Where having lower rents, having smaller, more nimble operations, having not, not to drive 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours to get to your farms or your fishermen or producers, like all of those things led to the opportunity to having a chance of succeeding. And then also being in a smaller town like Providence, I can speak more about here. We have like five or six colleges here and that energy and everything that comes along with having youth and arts and like a burgeoning arts community and, and young people and constant turnover leads to a very mixed demographic, like socioeconomically, financially, but also the need for and the want and the appreciation for new and exciting things. It's always been a, a fun, weird little city that's very arts forward. There aren't a lot of chains here at all. They're not usually very successful. There are some that have bucked the trend over the years, but mm -hmm. you'll see, you know, I wouldn't know the exact statistic, but, you know, I would venture to say a, a predominantly owner-operated smaller venues, and that's hard to do, but it's also, it's just part of the fabric here, and I think similar in other, like, smaller, more punchy cities when the rents are, you know, of course, if you talk to any of us, you would probably still say, it's still too high and it's still like a, a huge expense and every day is a, is a battle. But even the opportunity, like if I was going to try to do this in New York City or, down, or Boston or San Francisco, I, I just never even would have had, it just wouldn't have even been an option, right? Okay. I moved over to a side of town that was really run down and had cheap rents, right? And that's how I was able to even, you know, just start clung forward. And I think that's... You know, you need that opportunity and that spark. Okay. Let's, let's see. What about beverage on the beverage side, Jesse? Well, I think even just as a whole, one thing I've always liked about Providence is that we sort of have a little bit of a Napoleon complex. So we're kind of always like, oh, we can do what Boston does. We can do what New York City does because we're often overlooked like in the press and, you know, star chefs are coming through for coastal New England is cool because... I think that we have such access to incredible produce and the coastline, obviously, that we have so much to offer. And I think like one thing that we've always done in this town is really kind of swing for the fences. You know, there's definitely a lot of camaraderie with chefs in Providence, but there's also a bit of like competitiveness. Like we kind of push each other because there's a lot of talent. I think like that kind of drive is very unique because things aren't handed to us. We have to really do special things to get attention. And I think that there's a lot, you know, that just geographically allows us to do that. So how have you seen the scene change in the past? I, obviously, there's a pandemic in the middle, but like I would say in the past five to 10 years, how would you say that the, what are like the main, you know, changes? A lot. So I moved here from Portland, Oregon, seven years ago, and we were looking for you know, a place. We were doing pop-ups out there, mm -hmm. uh, Dune Brothers, and we were looking for a place, and I didn't want to be back in Boston. I didn't want to be in New York. I wanted to you know, 
find somewhere close to where I grew up on Cape Cod. So I chose Providence. I came here. I actually ate at Nick's on Broadway. I ate at North when North was still here and Birch and Oberlin. And I was like, man, there's cool stuff going on in this city. So we chose here. When I got here seven years ago, the place that we occupy now that you all saw, there was nothing there. Like there was not the building that was next to us was not there. The footbridge was not there. And it's really connected the whole city. And you've just seen people move here now and start to come here, you know, after not wanting to live in Boston because of high rents. Like we keep talking about high rents and stuff like that and being able to come here. Like when I moved here, I had a three bedroom apartment for $1,200. And like, I mean, to add on to what he was saying too, is the, you know, the camaraderie here is really great. Like everybody was helpful when I moved here. You know, you're opening a new business, you have a million questions and every chef in this town was helpful. I can call them on the phone, ask them a question, and it's really <laughs> great. And you don't get that in a city like Boston or New York or Portland, Oregon, per se. Okay. Kevin, how would you say it's evolved? Like maybe from a my culinary standpoint. I grew up in Rhode Island, and I lived here till I was 18 and then left and thought I was never going to look back. I, you know, moved all over the place, worked at, worked at restaurants all over, and most recently landed in Boston and I was in Boston for about nine years and I had a restaurant there and was really into the food scene there. I, you know, I had so much potential and just ended up moving back home to Rhode Island to raise a family that that's what brought me back. But so I've only been back here for three years and, you know, I thought I had an idea of what Rhode Island was going to be all about, even though I was just in Boston and it's not far away, but I was so fo laser focused on what I was doing in that, my little town in Boston. So, you know, what I thought it was going to be to what I see now, it's exciting. Uh, especially even the past three years since being back in Rhode Island, you know, people are willing to take a risk. People are willing to try something different and be unique and stand out. I think to Jesse's point, like you gotta, nothing is handed to anybody. And if you don't take a risk and, and push and, and be different and, mm -hmm. you know, not just to be different, but to be yourself. So I think I am seeing more and more and more of that, which okay. is exciting. Any idea of how, if you project in the next five years, how you see things changing? Well, I think, you know, everybody sitting up here and, and all of our other, you know, friends and colleagues in the restaurant industry in Rhode Island, if we keep doing what we're doing, it's, it's going to attract more talent that mm -hmm. are going to help us, you know, A, not work as much as I'm sure all of us are working so that we can, we can teach and mentor and train people to do you know, what we really want to do. Cause I, I'm willing to bet that we're all kind of holding back a little bit and we're probably a little more ambitious and would love to do more and love to push Rhode Island further. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can only push it as far as our teams can handle it. I was just going to say one of the things to me that is really exciting about food in New England, at least in Rhode Island, is that like 10 years ago in Providence, all the f like famous restaurants were Italian red sauce joints and like weird steak, sushi, hybrid <laughs> restaurants and just like very strange spots that had nothing to do with New England cuisine. Derek's spot here, Nick's on Broadway, is really one of the first, if not the first, to really embrace the local farms. And that's something that's really, really started to become the identity of restaurants in, in Providence and all of New England, I think. I think you see like cranberries like getting their limelight you know like they're you know there's so much stuff that was kind of just looked over forever and i think that those things are really like just becoming very embraced and really at the forefront like 
we love exotic ingredients and stuff too, but we really like what we have here. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the best chefs around highlight that and, and really showcase that. And you don't see that kind of fusion exotic kind of weird food as much, which I think is, is a, a great thing. And it's yeah. part of the identity of us as New Englanders. And that's, it's great to see that kind of make a comeback. To, to add on to that, if I can. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's great. You know, us specifically, we work with seafood and, you know, Derek is someone that has been doing that forever here. And, you know, when I came here, not everybody was doing that. And it's like, we're the ocean state, like it's awesome. So that's one of the biggest food trends I've seen is obviously we started to use what was known as a lot of underutilized species, dogfish, whiting, butterfish, scup, you name it. And through the years, the seven years that I've been here, it's now on everybody's menu. And it's really creating a great thing for all the small boat fishermen, for us, for community and keeping that kind of mm -hmm. in here. It's, it's, it's great to see on everybody's menu. And the consumers changed a lot. Yeah. The consumer is into it. Oh, like that, they that. want local. I mean, yeah. everyone knows that. Everybody we had to teach that, a little at first. And then yeah, once, sure. we, well, got, I think once that's we got them there. The yeah. biggest trend that I see coming is kind of on the other side of the aisle from like owner operator is I think that the average guest is going to continue to get more and more discerning with who they choose to patronize. So whether that's in your purchasing practices, are you supporting local farms? Mm -hmm. Are you, you know, using fish from our waters? Are, do you have equitable practices as far as keeping your staff in like a healthy and functional state? You know, Providence is a small city. So the, the ripple effect of, you know, maybe you had like a falling out with an employee, like that echoes kind of through the city. So the people that are treating their teams right and the people that are treating our like small economy right are going to be the people that are going to attract you know the passionate diners in this city hey, there's enough let's say room to grow for because you're talking about more people will come talking about you know chefs and businesses there's enough here in new providence area newport to attract even more restaurants and because, you know, there's after the share of the stomach, you know, of people that are that are here. And obviously it's not like the large cities that you were talking about before. So there's still room to grow for this, you think? Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's, you know, especially too with, I mean, we're a huge, Rhode Island's a huge tourist economy. Sure. And now people are, you know, coming and they're staying at the coast, but they're driving into Providence to spend money at the restaurants here because the restaurants are great. Or if you live out in Warren or whatever, you're coming down to Fox Point to go to Pizza Marvin because you heard it was awesome. And mm -hmm. like, yeah, I mean, when we're open, it's like there's New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania plates. And I'm like, where are you guys coming from? You know, so it's like they're definitely coming into the city. And that's, giving, okay. you know, I think that's a great thing for all of us restaurateurs and people that run places because you can, you know, there's infrastructure here to keep opening and there's okay. there's the diners. I think also our proximity to Boston is, you know, depending on the day is, is, a, is a great or a bad thing. So I think that we're starting like every day, we're seeing more and more overflow of the people that are either, you know, maybe exhausted by the food scene in Boston or be just realize how accessible Providence is by train or by car. And I think that we're seeing like a lot more influx of, you know, the Boston dining crowd. And I also think that, you know, per the proximity of Providence to Boston, a lot of people are getting priced out of Boston and are choosing to spend more time down here and explore more of what's down here. And, you know, I feel like more often than not kind of falling in love with what's down here because it's 
in my opinion, and part of the reason why I moved back here. Okay. It's, there's just there's a charm to the city that you know Boston kind of lacks. Kevin, you wanted to say something? No, I was going to say you know. Again, bringing it to, because I'm from Newport, but Newport is, mm -hmm. there is a cap. There is a ceiling there, unfortunately. And for many reasons, you know, it's a city, it's an island. So, you know, there's only so far you can keep going out. But also the city has a cap on liquor licenses, which, you know, and if you want to open a new restaurant in, in Newport, you have to pay over $400,000 for a, li a full liquor license. Or in that, Providence, it's like $2,500 and they'll just give it to you. Right. Yeah. And you, just pay, you just pay a fee every year, right? Yeah. So for, for somebody that wants wow. to start out, that's, you know, got their chops, worked, they learned, they want to, whether they're sure. on the beverage side or the food side, you know, it's not, opportunities aren't just going to come. Mm -hmm. um, so there is somewhat of a cap in Newport, unfortunately. They're not okay. just going to release more liquor licenses. You know, we were talking earlier, though, about being open in the summer in Providence, because 10 years ago, restaurants in the summer were dead there was no one in providence like literally i lived in providence for the last 20 plus years i always kept a job in newport because i needed to have those shifts in the summer and keep that job so i'd work one shift in the winter and spend all my other shifts up here but like to have a restaurant that's almost really only open in the summer yeah. is unheard of it's crazy i think a lot of that does go back to covid where patios popped up. Outdoor seating became a thing that was never a part of the dining culture in Providence, for sure. So, you know, I think there's just a big shift plus quality of restaurants and people being more aware they're, they're happy to stay in the city and dine out. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's not just going to the coast and having a kind of so-so mm -hmm. meal, unless you're at Justo or Mother, but there's, there's, <laughs> there's quite a few restaurants in That's Newport that one. are just like on the water and they're beautiful and they're fun and they're iconic, but the food's not that great, you know? And I think Providence has certainly attracted summer tourists that might be staying in Newport or in Narragansett, but will come to the city to dine. For sure. Okay. Let's switch to another topic. Maybe we can start with you, Derek. So you guys were talking about locally sourced ingredients, supporting local communities. So can you share with us a little bit how do you, you know, approach this with the creating partnership, you know, with local purveyors and, and farmers? Sure, absolutely. I think for me, being from here and then making the decision before I opened the restaurant, I was going to go somewhere else and I decided to stay here. And one of the reasons was to what Jesse said about having a chip on your shoulder and realizing that, you know, hey, wait a minute, I'm not like, we're not, we don't get enough respect here for how beautiful of a place this is. And it maybe when I was younger, it started out as like a little bit of being like, you know, not angry, but just a little pissed off about it. And then just wanting people to celebrate and understand how beautiful and how wonderful that this place was and, and how close the ocean is and that all the apple orchards that I used to play in when I was a kid and the farms that we could, that you could go to and you could drive to and all the, um, all the amazing products, but also the sense of community when you have a lot of owner operated or smaller, small business friendly, I should say culture you know, there is a sense of community and through food, 
it, it creates a unique opportunity for us to really buy into that literally, you know, and create a sense of a partnership with people within our community where we're able to celebrate what they do, fund what they do, express it, you know, take it, put it in our own artistic, you know, sensibilities and, and, and decisions and create a business with all of this beautiful products through our own lens. And, and in doing that, you're creating this very reciprocal environment where people are you know supporting each other and then if we're doing it right and it tastes delicious right if it's good if it's delicious and if it's authentic and that's something i would like to harp on too the authenticity and the realness of 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 what's going on here in new england and in providence and when you have very driven smaller operators that are like very passionate about what they do and their decisions and why they're doing them right then we get to present something to the guests to the public right and then you're supporting it and if you appreciate it and you support it it really just connects this full full circle so, full cycle what was their reaction because you said you know everyone recognized that you started this you know several years back or you know, many years back and so how how they will welcome you and and you know because they were maybe not used to it so i'm thinking about the farmers yeah. i'm thinking about the fishermen people thought when I was you started crazy. your charcuterie yeah. program for instance you know all of that so I'm, I'm curious about that change of mindset i think initially some people thought i was crazy and they said oh that's cute like that's nice that you're going to try to do that and there wasn't a lot of infrastructure like yeah. and there's still it's still challenging to buy like local seafood not at nearly as challenging as it was but like if you want to get specific things and specific information there's now thankfully the last four or five years there's some really great smaller companies and things but the logistics and the infrastructure wasn't there to support and buy local everything was big box stores yep. or small vendors or you had to drive to small shops to try to get the stuff and consistency etc but i think when people like us like started to put forth this idea this product that was not trendy but create sort of actually started to create its own trend because we were just trying to be authentic and create a sense of self and place like a sense of terroir as we say in in wine or merroir and seafood and you know just like express like this is what makes us special, right? I'm not going to try to compete and be like a restaurant in New York or Boston or Chicago because that's not my experience and my story. My story comes from, you know, I you know, just finally realizing that, hey, this, I'm going to show you what comes from here. Okay. And I think, yes, I think people, once they started to taste that and see that, it became first, like when we started taking salmon off the menu 15 16 years ago and like people are like you don't have salmon you don't serve coca-cola you don't serve like and it was like i'm not trying to be a zealot i just like no we just have this really cool guy down the street that makes this stuff and i wanted to show you it you know it was a coming from a place of here let me make like let me like a little little italian grandmother yeah. you know like, let me make this for you and just sit down and let me make this for you and and hopefully you think it's delicious right mm -hmm. 
And I think that catalyzes into uh, yeah. where we are today. I, and I, I want to hear as well, you know, others' point of view. But Nick, for instance, that you know uses as well a lot of, of the the local fishermen, as we have seen, yeah, you know, at I your place. We started, in fact, with yeah. your location. Yeah, so. I think a lot of it was to add on to what Derek said, and also like us wanting to prove people wrong. When I, you know, when we first got here, you would hear from uh, it's really hard to work with local fishermen until you get to establish a relationship, and they were like, "Oh, that's cute." Like, there's a lot of people that come to us that say you're going to use us, and it was like well let us prove you wrong and it's like you know in the height of the summer we're selling 200 pounds of butterfish a week and they're like okay now we're taking you seriously so it was about forming those relationships that mm -hmm. were not easy to do like because you go down to the docks and have they don't want to talk to you it's kind of and we've seen that change a lot i think covid changed a lot of that too because then the the fishermen needed to sell fish at the docks as well and the public started to also see that but it took a long time to to get those things going and when i started i literally just picked up the phone and called the president of the rhode island fishermen's alliance which is no longer a thing anymore but i called him and i was like hey, I want to use all this different fish. And he was like, awesome. Let me hook you up with all these boats. And like, then it was just me convincing them that we're yeah, going yeah. to use them. And yeah, we're from Point Judith and down to Sakonet Point, Corey Wheeler, lots of fish, all the boats down Point Judith. And yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work driving around all over the place. Jesse, you want to add something? <laughs> well, I was going to say like, you know, fish and chips at your restaurant isn't just cod or whatever. Yeah, There's, you got all these other fish and like, it's cool to see that. I always think of porgy or scup, which like back in the day, no, you could catch it everywhere. No one ate it. No one ate that fish at yeah. all. It's hard, there's many bones in it. It's just a pain in the neck. It was a bait fish. You'd see, you know, it, people would catch it all the time, throw it away. Nowadays, you see a crudo. I, I remember a few years back taking a friend of mine, who's not as much into food as I am, to a restaurant downtown, being like, yo, they've got scup as crudo. And he's like, that's disgusting. Like, you got to be kidding me. Like, that, are you serious? Like, they're serving that here? And I was like, yeah, like, this is good. And we ordered it. Mind you, all the crudos that they served just had a little salt, lemon, olive oil. But this one had, like, a little olive and a little chili. So it was, like, kind of dolled up a little. But it was delicious. And even just to see that friend of mine kind of be like, holy shit, like, this is, this is really nice. Oh, I like it? this. You know, like, this is delicious. I never would have thought that you could... For one, eat this, but eat it raw, too. So I think just, like, the relationship with local fish has changed. Mm -hmm. And like Derek said, like, salmon. like Yeah, why are we like, serving are we salmon? Serving We're not salmon. in Oregon. Literally, that's, <laughs> like, a popular fish. It was. It still is. But there's a lot of restaurants right now that are serving, you yeah. know, and not, not, there's great salmon out there. But there's just a lot of cool local fish that, sure. that are kind of new to the scene, I'd say. Kevin or Eric, can we talk a bit as well, maybe beyond fishermen talking about farmers as well here yeah i think if you don't mind i mean the the flexibility <laughs> has to be there and and that's what you know being flexible and and establishing and building like a real relationship with the farmers you know for example you know lamb if i want to put lamb on the menu i i don't just order lamb i i you know i call don and deborah hopkins and i say what lamb what cuts do you need to get rid of what do you, what are you trying to get rid of? Not can I order, you know, rack of lamb and use and come up with a dish. And that's how the creative process for me is usually the best. It's this is what the farmer has and I'm going to make a dish out of it. And okay. you build that relationship with people by having that trust. And then eventually that trust translates over to the guests and the customers and they come in and 
don't care if the cut of lamb changes all the time or don't care if the fish changes based on what is available to you okay. because they know that whatever you're going to serve is good. Okay. And and if I could also just riff on that and say that the idea of symbiosis, you know, and when we talk about community and it really is like, as he mentioned, you know, you know, like the idea of living off the land, if you will, and the idea of that, okay, if I'm a good partner to my partners, you know, then they will also, mm-hmm. in theory, be good partners or have the opportunity and the resources and the passion to also invest in this relationship, right? And everything comes down to relationships. And if you can at least aspire to be symbiotic in your relationships with not just with each other, but also with like our professional relationships, but with our farmers and our producers, our vendors, and then also the guests, right? Like the, the people that are funding it, right? Like if, if we can try to be good partners in it, then it, it becomes... Okay. Yeah. And to emphasize, you know, kind of Derek's point is like I personally, whenever I we're small enough at Thick Neck that I go to the farmer's market every week with my stupid little wagon and just fill it up as high as I can. But every time that I walk away from one of my farmers, I'm just like, when you guys are done for the day and you have anything that you don't want to lug back down to Little Compton or back up into Massachusetts, text me, bring it by the restaurant. And then we'll work it out. You know, if it's if it's B grade tomatoes that aren't going to make it to your next market, or that you guys don't have facilities on site to turn into sauce or whatever, like some of these farms do, you know, those are my favorite texts to get. Is hey, you know, we've got a couple flats of tomatoes. Can we swing them by you? And you know, we'll we'll cut a deal. Or next week we're you know in the winter we're mowing down a bunch of spinach in one of our tunnels. Can we put you down for a couple like twenty pound bags? I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, all day. And it just informs the menus. You know, it's it's you know you kind of get like a glimpse into like oh we know that we have this coming next week so let's try to get creative in the next couple days. You know, so it's a win win for everybody. It's like we're helping out the farmers, we're helping out ourselves because we're not starting from scratch of just like oh we have like you know, three spots on the menu that are due for a flip, you know, we have at least one of them that is going to be spinach. What are we going to do there? So that's a good segue, Eric. Thank you for you know, focusing on this because for me, the next point is how do you approach like the, the, the creation, you know, of a dish? So inspiration, we understand at least for many of you or most of you, it starts with the local produce. But, you know, what's your innovation process? So when you have to start like a new dish on the menu based on protein or based on veggies and so on, what's your first step? Decide, you know, bringing the produce from like the farmers in or the fishermen. I personally keep a, a note on my phone that is it's a high form of chaos, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I couldn't even tell you how long it is at this point. But it's just things that come to mind. It's things that I tried at another restaurant. It's things that I saw on TikTok. It's something that I woke up in the middle of the night and I was just like, oh yeah, white chocolate and wasabi, why not? And then, you know, then, you know, back to my point of like, you get spinach. It's like, okay, so we're starting at spinach. Let me open this note on my phone and I'll just scroll through until something makes somewhat sense. And then, you know, then you have 
two pieces to the puzzle. And then, you know, maybe you ask a line cook or your sous chef, just be like, hey, what if we did this and this? And they say, okay, what about that? And then, you know, just, it's a snowball effect to some point, but I just keep kind of like this very crazy framework of just like loose and fast ideas in my phone that I can always use as a touchstone. Kevin, what's your approach? So for at, at Justo specifically, we, since we open, we keep a, we use Google Sheets and we have a tab for each month of the year. And, you know, I did all the, all the legwork when we first opened and went through each month, the produce that's coming into season and the produce that's coming out of season. And, and, you know, that give or take a few weeks, depending upon the year. And we challenge all the chefs and all, and the cooks and are invited to this as well. But, you know, plug in ideas for next month and try to get ahead of it and think about for next month, you know, we're, we're a big restaurant. So we kind of have to plan far out and we, we aren't, we're not able to be as spontaneous. So I guess we could if we really wanted to, but so the first week of the month, the, all the chefs get together, we meet, we talk about everybody's ideas in that spreadsheet, what's in season, what's out of season. And then we go around the room, everybody sells their dishes. So there's five or six people in the room. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, this is what I was thinking. It's this idea and maybe, you know, maybe it's missing a component and that's where that banter comes and that's fun and the chefs are rounding out each other's dishes. So that's the first week of the month and then we change the menu to the last week of the month and that happens every month. So we do, you know, every month I'm stressed for the last week of the month and I'm wondering why and I realize it's because, you know, the same time of the month. And do you have as well, like the, I would say a challenge, the fact that there's a, kind of a positioning of the restaurant because obviously it's Italian Italian food. So you have that layer as well of complexity on top of what's available or the idea that I have or what you have on your spreadsheet. It has to fit the brand, correct? Yeah. And you know, we, I came up with this again, framework for how does the menu change go down at Justo and so that we can teach the chefs and the next people coming up in the restaurant, how to come up with ideas because anybody can come up with something good, but I want it to be unique and specifically unique to Justo. And that's hard. It's hard for somebody new coming in. And I don't want to stifle creativity because we, you know, I, we call ourselves a freestyle Italian restaurant. You know, that to me, that's just like cook whatever the hell you want and make it feel yeah, so that as a tagline. Is, is it, is it, does it feel Italian? And that's vague. You know, it's, yeah. it's not a red sauce restaurant, but there might be some red sauce inspiration somewhere in there. Not very much, but if it feels Italian and to, to me, the most important thing for Italian is it's simple, quality ingredients, you know, using local and, and that's Italian. So you could just check that off the box if somebody comes up with a dish that okay. works there. Thinking about you, because, I, you know, your approach to, at least from what we have seen on the menu, is very, you know, specific. It's not, it's very, let's say, concept related, maybe not as seasonality based and so on. So I'm, I'm curious how you approach the, you know, the menu on creating like a new cocktail. Yeah, for sure. So on our menu at the restaurant, we have some drinks that just stay on all year that are our most popular. You know, we try to use local whenever we can, like the, the transfusion you guys had uh-huh. yesterday. It's our top selling drink. It features Concord grape. Yep. You know, it's not, you know, it's a seasonal product, but you know, we get decent 100% Concord grape all year, and I just run it all year. It's a nod to New England. It's delicious. I don't need to have actual fresh Concord grapes to pull it off. 
of course, seasonally, we do rotate drinks in. So we'd certainly have summer drinks. The Caprizi you guys had yesterday is only on the menu when tomatoes are in season, for sure. The cantaloupe as well, I guess. I'm sorry? The cantaloupe? like The cantaloupe, yep, exactly. You know, in the springtime, we do a gin and tonic with sugar snap peas. I think one thing that inspires me a lot in New England is the seasons and actually the colors of the seasons. Like... California has great produce and it's beautiful all the time and whatever, but like to suffer through the winter and come to spring and see green vegetables come to us again, or it's, it's incredibly inspiring. And like for me, like literally in the spring, I make drinks that are green. In the fall, I make drinks that are brown and orange and, and those kind of autumnal colors. Like I'm inspired by that because also... That's what the produce, that's what it looks like. You know, there's like squashes and pumpkins and, and, and apples and pears. That's like what we're coming into right now. Mm-hmm. Those drinks have a certain color. And like, you know, people often talk about what grows together goes together, which yeah. is true. But I think actually like colors are, you know, they, they, when something's red, it goes good with something else that's red. And I think that really ties into seasonality and, and into a lot of the seasonal ingredients, specifically in New England. Derek, and yeah. those and also to riff on what Jesse's saying is those colors and those ingredients are indicative of a feeling also and part of our environment, like the temperature is changing, right? So what's refreshing in August or July is not refreshing when it's cold or snowy in January, you know, always. Obviously, a great cocktail is refreshing all the time. But, you know, in terms of influencing the palate and the menu those colors and those ingredients changing also change like today we wanted to sit outside right because it's not 110 degrees out and 200 percent humidity right and it feels nice because it's in the 70s and it's not in the 90s and 100 right and that will continue to change so what our bodies are going through both like color and temperature wise and like what you want to eat and drink in June, or as Jesse was saying, like after the doldrums of the winter, when you're just like, give me stew and give me, you know, braised root vegetables and candlelight and dark. And, you know, I'm in this, in this emotional cave when it starts when the first sprouts in the springs and like, you just, it it drags you into this Mm -hmm. like wanting this yearning, right. Which I think from the creative process drives us to, you know, gives us direction and inspiration to also want those colors, want those feelings, to want to emote those feelings, even if it's not specifically a local ingredient or specifically a thing. It's like it, it, it colors and informs our crea- creative methods to want to to okay. want to be in harmony with that. So, so we talked about you know seasoning ingredients and and other sources of inspiration. Yeah. Obviously, there's people in the room here that have you know, scientific background, food technologies background, and so on. So I'm, I'm curious how science and technology play a role in, you know, in your innovation process and creative drinks or dishes and dessert. Scientifically related, obviously, in, you know, what I do is primarily seafood. I think I was telling you the other day, like we're working with people right now to see how we can get spider crab meat and be some of the first people to try that and to see if that's marketable Mm because there's a million spider crabs in the ocean. And I don't think anybody's ever looked at a spider crab and said, I want to eat that, but we're willing to be the first people to work with other people that are scientists and whatnot to try things like that. And we're 
constantly looking at different ways to do stuff like that with seafood. Okay. I would say, you know, like the scientific process for us in the kitchen, you know, sometimes people like some of the younger cooks that we have when they're coming up with dishes, they try something once, they don't like it, and they either scrap it and try something completely different or change the dish entirely rather than like remove one variable at a time and not try to change the entire thing. That's a big process for us sure. in the kitchen. And I, and yeah. I always like to try, you know, if, if somebody has like a out of the, out of the left field idea for a dish, like try three approaches at the same time, like changing one variable. This yeah. is, you know, option one, option two, option three, they all, one variable is different in, in all three and mm-hmm. the rest of them are same. And that way we're not, it's a lot of work to come up with dishes as I'm sure everybody knows and coming up, coming up with flavors and food. So trying to get ahead of it. And, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, cooking is alchemy, right? And, and it's magic to us. And I think we will often lean into the, the whimsical side of it and the fantastical side and imaginative side. But when it comes to the technical aspects of being able to understand what's happening, especially with baking and pastry, or if there's specific methods and techniques that we're trying to hone in and refine, there is a lot of, there's so much science that we use and chemistry, the chemistry of ingredients together. So I think it informs, it helps structure. It's certainly an part of the the scientific method that process is is a is a filter that we're just running things through every every single day yeah i think i think i always like this question because it always comes back to like well cooking is science so mm-hmm. we're doing that every day sure no matter what it is so i'm thinking as well for cocktail you know clarifications yeah and, i was know. just gonna say like there's a there's a lot of like very like like i I think everybody on this panel likes to cook simple food. And aside from you, you get a little, a little more modern with it. But I'm saying like in mixology, I made a career on lemon juice and simple syrup and a booze. You know what I mean? That was simple. And to make that fresh and nice was a thing. But right now, like more than I think cuisine, like, like modernist mixology is making a comeback. Like you're seeing a lot of foams. You're seeing a lot of mm-hmm. like clarifications. I mean, I want to have a roto vape setup you know i want to have a uh a vacuum sealer you know you want to have all those things you know they're like they're expensive you know i think like again going to some big cities they get promotions and some companies like hey i like your restaurant here's a twenty thousand dollar roto vape like we don't get that here and it's like incredibly expensive to purchase some of that stuff but it's exciting I think like I want to have those things and you know like we were talking yesterday I've moved away from some of the just straight up fresh lemon juice and using different acids depending on the drink I'm making you know put the tartaric when you're making a a grape drink put the you know citric acid when you're making something lemony but you know to go into some of those things which aren't necessarily like a fruit that we're juicing to get and we're actually getting a powder or something I think that you like chefs aren't really afraid of that anymore. You know, certainly modern, like make, like modernist cuisine, there was a lot of powders mm-hmm. and different things going on, which I always liked that style of food. You know, there is a beauty to simple food, but I do like, you know, like Derek said, kind of whimsical, far out stuff. So some of those kind of interesting preparations are fun. And I think also with, with cocktails, it's like easier to be a little gimmicky mm-hmm. in a good way. Whereas with food, it sticks out really far. Like people are like, oh, 
that I mean, you foam was unnecessary. Your perennial fashion is a good example. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, so to me, again, I, like science, I love science. I wish I could afford more of the equipment to do some of the stuff I'd like to. But again, that's just, you know, we got to sell a lot of pizzas at the pizza shop, I guess. And one day I'll have a fun toy to play with, you know? <laughs> So you're talking a little bit of trends here. So any any trends that you guys uh, the first are trends something when it comes to food trend in of interest to you guys? You don't care about it. You are creating the trends, and the others are following. If there's any trends that you feel that are coming up that you are interested in? Yeah, I mean, what what we're doing a fast casual concept. You yep. know, I grew up in fine dining my whole life, and that's what I knew. And you know, like these guys at Pizza Marvin are doing, like they have a fine dining background. Like, I, I think what starts on like the West Coast slowly moves here to the East Coast and having some more fast casual restaurants to go in. Like we were talking earlier about, it's like, I want to go get lunch, but I want it to be really good and mm-hmm. I want it to be fast and I want it to be accessible and I don't need to sit down for, you know, a 14 course meal. Those places, those things and times are always appropriate for certain things, but like, you know, fast casual lends itself to just everyday food. And when I was on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon in particular, I mean, that's just the way it is. Like you're getting amazing food, you're getting it fast and you're eating it casually. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's and it's such- not too expensive. Exactly. Yeah. But even some of the, we were talking about that today at your restaurant, we were there and uh, your colleagues talked to us about the tasting menu that you have the seven courses I would $55, you know, the tasting menu for us coming from big cities. We are looking at this and we're like, coming tomorrow. It's not a traditional tasting menu. It's, it's meant to be fun and it's meant for people to love yeah. the food and enjoy the flavors. And I think that's why fast casual is so exciting. And that's, you know, I just opened a pizza place. Same thing. Like I, you know, Justo is like, all right, well, I miss just, I just want to eat a piece of pizza, yeah. you know, and mother and yeah. when I'm off. I go to pizza Marvin and still eat pizza. Sure. Um, but I think the fast casual thing is like, they think about food being delicious first. Do you think that the trend of fast casual accelerated because of COVID? Because we have seen a lot of chefs that were in fine dining, you know, gravitating. Burnout, burnout, the stress of just like large teams and being, you know, just having to constantly be creative and push and do something new and different instead of just like, I'm just going to make a delicious sandwich. And it's going to be awesome. I saw a ton of that being in Chicago for the bulk of the pandemic. You know, it was pretty cool to like go get a cheeseburger from millennia. So like there was, there was a lot of things that I think where chefs took the opportunity, you know, where there was a severe lack of opportunity to be like, Hey, we don't have to necessarily execute at the three star Michelin level that we're used to executing at and that people are coming to us for. It's like right now people are just looking for something, you know, wholesome. And there's a few different mediums that we can communicate that through so it gave chefs like a chance to like, you know, kind of like step down off of their standard platform and get back into like these like meal kits and things that were a little more like for the layperson. And I think that you're seeing a lot of like spin-off kind of concepts or like second or third concepts from these people that were like, oh, I forgot how much I enjoy making like beef bourguignon. And like, let's open a bistro. I was just going to say, I think a lot of chefs flex on classic dishes. Like they love to bust out some old French or some old Italian, you know what I mean? Have these like really like simple, very familiar dishes and just make an incredible version of that. And because, you know, the brain 
a, I think a good creative culinary mind is always going to push itself, sure. whether it's like coming up with something crazy, a really interesting combination of flavors or really conceptual idea for a dish. But the brain is still going to turn when they're making a beef bourguignon or something like that, you know, and they're going to be like, oh, my God, if I cook this a little differently, this thing's going to be really, really cool. You know, right. So, and I mean, with the fast casual thing, whether it's pizza, pizza shop, fish and chip shop, whatever it is, it's like the deliciousness of the food comes first because you're not worried about, you know, the way a napkin is on the table, the, all this stuff. So it's like, it's just food focused. And I think that was very exciting for chefs was to mm -hmm. be like, I'm just going to focus on this dish, like, and make it okay. delicious. So besides fast schedule, any other trends that you guys are seeing in the industry that could be ingredient related, that could be flavor related. That, not that it's a new trend, but I think that like people working fermentation into mm -hmm. like their daily, you know, daily driving techniques and it's become like you know some people use it as like truly a full framework for their menu and it informs a lot of the things what's coming in and out of your larder but i think that you're just kind of seeing that as just you know it's a it's a constant now where it's like you have producers now that are making like beautiful misos that were previously unavailable or soy sauces or people using you know, maybe it's a sake brewery that has sake leaves that you can mm -hmm. use. So I think that people are becoming, you know, more informed of just how broad the spectrum is for products that can be produced from fermentation, you know, through the likes of like the books that Noma has produced. And, you know, a lot of the work coming out of Copenhagen is yeah. kind of informing, you know, a lot of cooking all over the world right now. Okay. I want to turn to... My friends here, do you guys have any questions? I have plenty of questions, but I want to make sure that, you know, you guys are voicing your thoughts as well. And I will pass the mic, make sure that we can hear you. Hi, I'm Carlos. I work for Nestle. So I heard you saying a lot about locally sourced fish. Salmon is out of the menus because you have some other fantastic fishes here. So. If you could predict the future, what would it look like, the food in Providence, 15 years from now? I'd like to go to Whole Foods and get, you know, fish that's from here. I think, you know, starting small is one of the big things with some of the people that we're working on, where people are looking at, like, how to, you know, mass produce, you know, scup fillets and things like that to get them into institutions and stuff. And, like, we have enough seafood here that, like, we export that shouldn't be exported that much. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, we're the calamari capital of the world, but yet we sell, send it to China to come back here to get processed. Doesn't make any sense to me. So, what I would like to see is all of, but we have enough seafood in our oceans here to feed everybody, to feed homeless people, to feed institutions, schools. Like, I mean, you could be eating all of this stuff if we can just figure out how to, how to get it. And it starts small on a small level, I think is important with, you know, chefs like us that are utilizing things like that and trying to figure out how to get it out into the world more. Awesome. Thank you. I think you'll see, you know, like, for instance, sushi is like, it's an endangered species like sushi as we know it is not going to be a thing i think in a you know 20 years for sure and and a lot of that will play into the fact that we do have good fish so we can still have kind of a sushi experience but still you know it's maybe not going to be from japan and be the traditional thing that it once was because a lot of that stuff is just unsustainable and you know again like I, 
we're lacking an incredible sushi restaurant in the city of Providence. It was one that opened a few years back, and they did a little half Japanese, half local fish, and all. We were just like, yes, finally. But, yeah, you know, seriously. it's... I think fine dining is certainly at risk of being something very different. You know what I mean? Economically wise, everything, that's definitely, you know, again, the cheaper food for the people is certainly going to be the way of the future. I think fine dining is a beautiful thing. I love it. I, lo I spend way too much money on going out to dinner and going to, you know, drink at bars. I love it. You know what I mean? But I think like it's that, that's all going to shift, you know, certainly sooner than later. I would agree with that too, especially, you know, you read about it all the time, but I think it's also what people don't always know about, like in the kitchen specifically, and I'm sure in the front of the house, but cooks the past eight years, they move up the ranks too fast and they're not, you know, especially the past five years, like a cook will work somewhere great, then they'll work at one more spot, they'll get promoted to a sous chef, and then the, the learning slows down for them in terms of technique and cooking and... So I don't think we've seen like what's going to happen from that generation of cooks yet. I, I would venture to say that. No, I totally, I totally agree with you. I mean, like I, you know, I don't know what I don't know what it's like to just go and Google a dish when I was seventeen and eighteen years old. You know, I had to work in Boston. I was working, you know, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen hours a day from nine in the morning till ten o'clock to learn how to put a swoosh on a plate, to learn how to make a foam, to learn how to do that, and. Yeah, I don't, people today don't don't want to do that anymore. So it will be interesting to see where it goes because there's kind of this like like you just said where it's like okay here I am here I am and now oh I'm a chef because I googled this and I can do this but it's like can you make the mother sauces? Can you really go back and like all to all of those things and like do that kind of stuff? And I you know I we go we go through a lot of line cooks and it's just. That's not always the case, and there are great ones out there. And but yeah, it's tough. Like I agree with you. So don't know what the five five years looks like. It sounds kind of bleak, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean we can't die. <laughs> it's but it is certainly go in, going to inform what's available. I don't know as far as what's going to be trending then, but the idea that the curve should happen faster, you know, is is a real thing. And or that if we want to enjoy this medium that we're doing, if there's not enough people that enjoy doing the work or or going through the process that builds the foundational skills to be able to do the work with any sense of longevity and acuity, what's it going to look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years, five years, probably not that different, 10, 15 years. It's going to be kind of wild to see for, for all of those, all of those reasons. I do think for that and many more, we are seeing a lot more like return to like a specific specificity, like where people are, you know, you know, just doing donuts or just doing, you know, great pizza or just doing, you know, seafood or just doing which is kind of cool like a kind of this return to like yeah they might do more than that but like this is what our main main thing is going to be this one thing and it's creating more specializing which i think is fun for the diner you know and for a community because you kind of have this return it's less well everybody does everything you know and that i think is really interesting i hope 
that that continues because I think it's more fun and I think you could really go down the rabbit hole as a as a diner, a consumer, or also as a craftsman to be able to get really good at one or two or three things and just like really know everything about is, is it. Is it something that comes from the philosophy of like someone coming from food trucks? Because I, and again, I'm not a chef. I don't own a food truck. But from the discussion that I had with, you know, a lot of the chefs on the podcast is the people that started with the food trucks and the one that were very successful at it was like to f- focus on one single item, do it the best they could and, and really focus on the high, like the high quality. Of course, something that could be handheld and, you know, and so on. But so is it a, cause I, I when I, I hear you, a- it's a little bit. I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I, it's not a, it's not an impossible stretch, but I think it's a far, I think it's a little far stretch. Food trucks are tough, you know, like they have to be really good. The really good ones find a way to survive. And when they do that one or two things really, really well. So yes, in that, in that way, but they're also very nimble and they have found a way to curtail some of the biggest pitfalls that we as operators face, you know, rent large, large staffing, labor costs, you know, food costs, labor costs, rent, right? Those are the three things that will just, you know, yeah, you know, so it makes it a little bit more flexible, but I think that the real, the real thing is that you're creating an overall smaller footprint, right? Like, and that makes you more flexible and more adaptable to be able to do that. But back to tying it to what they were saying about during the pandemic, it was a forced reset for a lot of us or, and, and for everybody, not just, not just the operators, where you're like, what really matters? When, when I, if I can only leave the house once and I'm only going to go out once a week or twice a week or once a day, what are the things that I consider frills and extras that I can live without? And what is the thing that I absolutely... I, is my paramount objective, right? And for a lot of us, hopefully that's flavor and taste and not, is it on a nice plate? Is it in crystal glassware? Do I have all the points of service, which are fun and amazing when you can do them, but they're not without cost and not difficult, right? So when forced to decide what is the most important to us, and a lot of us, and I'm not judging anybody because everybody was, it had, was and is constantly trying to survive and making their own choices. But like when I had to decide for myself, what am I going to spend the money on this week? Am I going to go with paper plates and plastic cups and the same high quality food from the same farmers and vendors? Or am I going to order cheaper food so that I can keep some of the other things going to, to, that I think guests might expect like the same amount of hands at the table in terms of service staff and size of team, the same polish, you know, do, are I going to keep ordering linen napkins or and raise my prices continuously? Or am I going to keep, try to keep my prices, find a balance, keep my prices lower, buy a paper napkin or a less quality glassware so that I can keep, paying the increased prices for the farm fresh meats and seafoods and produce that I get. And I think luckily for a lot of us, we chose the quality of food over 
over the other over the other things and i think hopefully lucky for everybody else so i think that that will that will continue to trend wise if we go back to the idea as a trend i think that people are forced you know we just come to these constant forks in the roads where we choose to decide this or this this or that you know and you're like i'm going to go this i'm going to go with the quality ingredient on the plate or in the glass every every, every time hi I'm, my name's dan i work for nestle Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed what I've sampled so far this this week. Um, you do have a very beautiful setting here. This is my first time in Rhode Island. And to Nick's point about, um, you mentioned spider crabs. I, I discovered where the head on a on a white fish is. Right? I thought this was a big shrimp at your place. <laughs> <laughs> and for for the schools that are here, so I know Johnson White for Johnson Wales. I imagine there are some schools that specialize in oceanographic studies. How can you partner channel those resources to leverage what's what's the bounty so, of this? So that's exactly to, yeah, yeah to, that's exactly what we're what we're doing. I mean, right now I just met with the community fisheries research. I always say it wrong, CRF. <laughs> but uh, I just met with them and there's been a scup filet machine sitting in New Bedford that there was a grant grant money for that nobody's using and it's sitting there. So we're trying to partner with them to start on a small scale of getting that thing back up and running. There was like an issue with the tasters didn't like the bloodline in it after it had been flash frozen. And to me, I'm like, that seems crazy. It doesn't, it seems like this giant fish house didn't want to do the work anymore because it's not money for them. So that's why I keep talking about starting on a smaller scale. You know, us talking to them about spider crab and being like, can we get you some so you can try it and give it out to your guests? If it doesn't work as actual meat, it's going to go uh, for flavoring into foods, which I think is something that you guys all do, which is very interesting to get an ocean flavor into something else. But like, yeah, there are so many people here to partner with, and that's exactly what we we're, what we're doing. And and to speak directly to that as well, we are so lucky, you know, and, and it's not all luck, right? It came from people's hard work, but like to be in a community where we have not just a culinary and hospitality and business school, but we have URI, right, which is world-renowned world for their ocean, you know, oceanography and marine biology programs, and the science that's going on in terms of ocean health and wellness there, uh, but then also RISD, the School of Design, right? And, and Brown also, right? When we think about policy and social wellness and some of the things that have happened on that layer to support and build structure, uh, you know, where like, like the organization is called Farm Fresh that developed from Brown students and graduates like that were part of developing systems like food food systems right and to be able to be in a place that has people from all of that in a very small space exciting things can happen but of course it takes it takes time and then it takes drivers like you know these chefs and bartenders and and people that are uh, getting people excited without what we do, right? Putting it out and creating an excitement and a demand for it. It's, it really fills in the circle and the need, right? Because then it gets us all down these amazing paths 
to make it sustainable and make it happen to actually come to fruition. Yeah, if you can just uh, for like context, like when speaking about like scup, like scup, like when you go down and get it off the boat, it's a dollar seventy-five, right? That's really cheap. And if we can figure out a way to get that out and out to the masses and get that fed, I mean, that's huge. I mean, when I have you know, pollock goes in my fish sandwich. I think I was explaining that to you guys the other day. You know, that's five to eight dollars a pound depending on the season. If I could have scup, which I love because I think it should be on the state flag. I tell everybody that because yeah. friggin' delicious. Amen. I would rather Amen. that. I would rather that in my sandwich. It's a better price point, and I could probably lower my price on my sandwich for the consumer as well. And it's a better story too. It and is. I think that's like part of what we all want to do as as you know people in this industry is have a story to our food. It accomplishes so many things, right? Like depending on what lens you're looking through, it not only is it first and foremost delicious and available and abundant and a wildly untapped resource, right? But it expresses, it expresses such a unique and authentic sense of place, right? And isn't that at the end of the day, so much more interesting as citizens, travelers, you know, to be able to go all over the world and all over the country and just taste different things and have, and it's not saying I, you know, everything should taste again. It's like, it's the exact opposite of like, we're not saying what we do is better than anywhere else. Although, I mean, sometimes it is. No, it's, it's that each place expresses its own sense, like its own sense of terroir. Right. And that's really wild. Chat GPT have been like the words of 2023. And you mentioned Google sheets. So you go through your notes, look at say spinach and what's next in the recipe. Do you think, Chat GPT will play a role in recipe development. How will things change in the restaurant in- industry where you don't even have to ask your oh, sous yeah. chef and yeah. just type and so AI technology in general, like food printing, how are these things? Do you think about it or does it not? I hope it goes away. I yes. want nothing to do with it. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm with it. Uh, the other day I put business projections in with just like, I think we put in like maybe five or six numbers and it spit out a whole three-year projections plan that was m- more or less accurate. So for for certain things as just a, you know, beyond the scope of a restaurant as a small business, I think that there's certainly a use for it. But I mean, I'm not going to write my autobiography on there. I mean, AI, <laughs> AI is unfortunately, Nick, is not going to go away. I know. You have to totally work <laughs> I'm too old it. school, man. Um, I, I know a lot of chefs that have started to experiment even for recipe development with it because this is this is access to everything that's been available digitally. So I, I've seen already some cookbooks that have been created from scratch, only hundred percent created by ChatGPT by just having some specific prompts to make sure that you know it's coming from an expertise, from a culinary expertise standpoint, and it, it's really mesmerizing. So I think that. Obviously, there's probably no energy to spend on fighting against it because the new generation of kids are going to learn, you know, how to leverage it and, and work with it. So, I don't know if anybody's seen the pepperoni hug spot AI. It's an AI-generated pizza parlor commercial. It's called Pepperoni Hug Spot. I would look it up. It's terrifying. But as soon as I saw it, I was like, damn, Pepperoni Hug Spot. How do we not think of that? That's such a great name. We got Pizza Marvin over here. I'm like, what the? This is genius. I would check it out, though. Very entertaining. Pepperoni Hug Spot. 
It's just like it's that I've seen it on Instagram. It's an AI generated, you know, little 30 second thing. It's terrifying. And I, I think, you know, it's a tool, right? And I think some will lean into it more than others. I'm sort of in Nick's boat where I'm like, sometimes in the the new technology is is wildly intriguing and you know and there's certainly some like a shiny thing i want to chase but also when it comes down to like what we do i i it's it's i will choose to use it at least at this point i don't really use it a lot you know because i'm more of like a fire campfire like old like the i get into hospitality and cooking because i want it to be a respite from some of the some of the changings of the world if you will because um there's just something about sitting around a table elbows around a bowl you know grandma ripping a loaf of bread and handing it to you that and that's sort of the feeling that's the the ghost i'm chasing you know that kind of feeling and i think for everybody it's different um i wouldn't say never i think technology is of course amazing and wonderful and for us like i can't stop like my cooks or somebody from using it to develop a recipe or an idea and i and i think it's if it's used properly as a tool and as a resource who knows sky's the limit but at the end of the day you come to a restaurant or a bar or a, a hospitality place because it's one of the last bastions of personal service and there's it takes people to create that we're certainly trying to find a way to to do it without people but that scares me like you know i love the idea that it can make things efficient and help you know like do things like projections and and but i'm thankful that there's a need and hopefully there will always be the need for us to still have you know hand-to-hand cooking and and service really quick Gentlemen, I appreciate what you guys what you guys have been doing. We stopped at every one of your places. And believe me, it's been 37 years since I've been back here. Graduated in 86. And my fine dining back then was Saki's and Haven Brothers. Yes. And, and one in the morning, right? Yeah. So still kicking. I, yeah. I, I know they are. So I know this town where it was and where it came from. I think you guys are doing a phenomenal job. My question is really. I know we touched on innovation. We talked about you guys support the farms. You support the fisheries. Uh, when it comes down to it, where is – that's your innovation. You guys, are, you're passionate about that. That's where you innovate from. You want to support those local guys. But where do you take it from there? I mean, you have a consumer to answer to, right, and provide for. How do you, how do you solicit that? what the consumers want into innovation, not just your innovation. You know, I know I, I, I totally respect what you're doing with the local economy, but, you know, when it comes down to it, I know well enough, it's all about what the consumers want because they're the ones that are driving your business, right? So how do you, this is a twofold question, so how do you get to that point? How do you solicit that information back? I mean, you got TikTok, you got all the social media, which is very helpful now, and where that where that ties into what we do. so. You don't know what I'm. I'm the product development chef at Borzet. Graduated here a long time ago and love what I do. But at the end of the day, it starts with you guys. It goes into the QSR. It goes into fine dining. From there is where it goes into manufacturing, right? You get these products that consumers love. 
that you guys started, and then it goes mainstream. And that's where we have to, our challenge comes in is like, how do we get it? How do we innovate on large scale? But my question is, you know, you guys are the, the incubator of it all. How does it start with you? Then it works its way through you. It gets into QSR. Again, it gets into fine dining. Then it lands on our plate. Like, all right, now all the consumers across the world are seeing this trend, what you guys are starting. How do we get it to fruition from there? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's listening to the consumer, first of all. I mean, you have to listen to your customer base. And obviously, the customers, they're pretty loud. <laughs> so, you know, if they if they like what you're doing, you're doing something right, you know. And then how do you get that into a larger scale of production? It's like those are things we've, you know, looked at and stuff like that. And, like, that was the whole point of going back to, like, the scup filet machine. Like, you know, maybe... One day, Boar's Head wants to do potato chip crusted scup filet like I have on my menu. You know what I mean? And how do you do that? But how do you keep that working with the local fishermen and all of that stuff and keep it real without it getting too muddied and too much? I think price is a lot of that. You know, we all have to make a decision. Like, we could all make our dishes at our restaurants way tastier if we just bought all only the best stuff. You know what I mean? And like... You have to be honest to the consumer about the price. And I think that that's the art is finding like, you know, we have a pizza shop. Yes, we buy from local farms, but we buy from Baldor. Like we buy a lot of our product from a regular place because if we were using locally organic grown tomatoes on our pizza, our pizzas would be $65 and no one would buy them. They would be delicious, but no one would buy them. So I think like that's a big part of it without a doubt, you know, and also just not like, you know, at our restaurant, like we have chefy pizzas on the on the menu that have all the local produce and have really like sauces that we've cooked down. And they, there's a lot into them. We sell hardly any of those compared to a pepperoni pizza. You know, the, the clientele we sell, right? We sell house of pizza style pizza parlor pies out the window. And of course, people love the carbonara, the chowder pie. Those are like a big part of our identity. But we know that we would not be selling those without the house cheese and the Roni Island. You know what I mean? So I think just like being honest with yourself and, and, and how hard you want to push yourself as a creative person, but also balancing that with price and with really what your customer wants. I would also say education too, and making sure that we're, we're teaching, inspiring and, and passing all the information, all the hard work that goes into coming up with sourcing those ingredients, developing those relationships with the farmers or whoever you're buying your products from and educating the front of the house team and making sure that, you know, they're telling the story of where the food came from before it even reached our doors. And, and that's, you know, for us is a big, big driver. Yeah. Like that's, yeah, we try to like, that's what we say. It's like, we try to educate without jamming it down people's throat or else these, we wouldn't have people coming to our restaurant five days a week to eat dogfish and scup and whiting because they wouldn't. So it's like subtle education to people without like ramming it down their throat. And they're like, oh, it's first and foremost, it's delicious. So I also think that there's been like, there's now more than ever, there's more conversation between like the chef and the diner at the table. You know, before it was always kind of like the chef oper owner operator, whoever it was, was just kind of like the figurehead and just, you know, they did what they thought worked. And if the customer didn't like it, you know, there was typically like a mindset of the customer is always right or the customer is an idiot, depending on who you're talking to, I guess. But I think now, you know, there's been so many, and this is kind of brought about by like pandemic, 
by social media where there's so many like lines of communication between reviews between you know tiktok instagram twitter whatever that it's you know you're constantly finding new ways to you know inform people of the practices that you have keep in your restaurant and that the guests have you know their the traditional means of informing you of like what they're after and like yeah you might not win the heart of the people that would like rather go get like a blooming onion once a week but you know you have a way better chance these days of you know getting them in there for for one night and putting something in front of them that they're just like oh maybe i should start caring about these things and then you know the things that that do that the things that sway those people are you know where a lot of your focus needs to get drawn to to you know continue to embellish obviously watch the bear <laughs> enough said right on that one uh, authenticity really like as he was saying you know like if you if we do something from the heart and from a, a point and of ethos and that doesn't always mean just serving the local ingredients but just do something with passion and commitment and hopefully good craftsmanship and you taste and feel the difference when you walk into a space that has that energy right you just do you walk into a restaurant or a cafe or a bar and you can kind of feel yeah we all have our off days but you can feel like a sense of energy in a space like where that happens only when people are doing good work and they believe in what they're doesn't mean they're perfect but that you know you have people working in in an inspired way because they believe in the product that they're putting together you know and i, I would just say also the idea of you know we are performing for an audience right like at, at the end of the day you know we're performing because we want to perform and hopefully we're singing the songs that we wrote and or that collaborated on or things that make us really happy or things that we respect and love but if there's nobody in the audience and we have nobody to sing to or nobody to perform to then what's it what's it all for right but likewise if we're just if we're not we have an audience but they're we're not authentic and it's not coming from a place of honesty or a place of individuality the what it's same same thing so finding the balance between like how can we go on this together and yeah there's going to be give and take along the way here because like, there has to be in every you know goes back to relationships right like how do i how do we achieve a healthy relationship between our guests and us well there's got to be something in it for both right and the same goes for our staff and for our you know our vendors and farmers and fishermen right there's going to be something in it for everybody, right? That makes everybody feel good. Otherwise, it can't sustain. Kevin wanted to add one thing. That will be the last comment. One very <laughs> quick thing. You know, we we also we need more people like Will and Nicole and Sam and the whole Star Chefs team to tell the story. And we can't do what we really want to do without the people gone, that are willing left. to. <laughs> To, to highlight that and showcase that. And we have a couple smaller publications here. Edible Roadie does a really nice job, I think, yeah. with telling stories of smaller producers and restaurants. But I think that would help, too, is having a better media presence. Yeah, there. correct. Yeah. Thank you very Thank you. much. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for your time. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast in Providence, Rhode Island. A huge thank you to our panelists for sharing their experiences, challenges, and visions with us. 
and to Simrise North America and StarChefs for facilitating this insightful discussion. If you are a culinary enthusiast or a chef hungry for more delectable stories and insight, then you are in the right place. Don't forget to visit our website, flavorsunknown.com, for more content. And if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button for more episodes, because if you have enjoyed today's episode, there are a world of culinary stories awaiting you on Flavors Unknown. Dive into our archives and listen to the stories of legendary figures like Jacques Pépin, Mani Chouan, Will Guidara, Chef Tavel Bristol-Joseph, Sheldon Simeon, Tiffany Derry, François Payard, Antonio Bachour, Elizabeth Faulkner, or Roy Yamaguchi. Don't miss out on these delectable conversations. With every episode, we promise a journey into the minds and kitchens of those who are truly redefining the culinary landscape. Until next time, keep exploring those unknown flavors. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.